In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode three of our second series of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And I'm a freezing cold, Liz Lister, Helen. I came oh. back, we were talking about sparkling Scotland. Well, we take our annual trip to Palma in Majorca in the first week of December to see sparkling Palma. And when I returned last night, the heating had gone off in the house because the pressure had dropped. It was three degrees in the house. So I don't know about sparkling Scotland, but I was chittering, Liz. It's It's been really cold. The temperature just plummeted, Liz, since you went away. And we had snow. It's disappeared again, but we had snow yesterday and the day before, so it's it's really sparkling Christmas. It is. We're up early to record and it is a beautiful Christmas scene out there, freezing cold, lovely crisp frost morning. Yes, and but I'm cold because I'm sitting in my wee office, Liz. I've managed to get the heating on the, in the house, but the radiator in this room has decided not to work, so I'm cold too. <laughs> They breed us hard in Scotland, but it makes a change because normally Scotland is cold and blustery, gale force winds sweeping the country. And of course, Scotland has a very long coastline. It's estimated about the mainland Scotland is just over 4,000 miles, but when you add in all the islands, it's a total coastline of about 11,500 miles. I mean, it's amazing for such a, a small country, when you look at it on the map, Liz, to think there's a over 11,500 miles of coast. Unbelievable. Yeah, when you take into consideration what is technically under the European Union, um, when those days were such that they set out what was Scotland's land, its seas are nearly six times the size of the land area of Scotland. That's quite a size of, of marine environment. It is, but it also makes us understand better how the main the main mode of transport or, or highway was the sea long ago before we started building roads. The main means of transport was by boat. Exactly. And so coming out of that, you know, we've got Scotland's proud maritime tradition. We've got the Vikings coming back in the old days. Then we've got the thriving shipbuilding industry. So we are seafarers and as such, we have been exposed to the stormy conditions and of course to many shipwrecks. Yes. And, and you know, I think as we grew up, Liz, 
practically all our our stories were of shipwrecks around the coast. You especially you'll hear where we are in Fife, or if you go further up round the coast, every sort of story you know, is dotted with stories of shipwreck and pirates, of course. Right, pirates, yeah, smuggling. Yes, it, it's um, it's true. It's part of our culture. Uh, of course, in these treacherous seafaring conditions, um, many boats and ships were were crashed on the the dangerous rocks in these terrible conditions. And so, when they started to chart the the coastline of Scotland, it was obvious that there needed to be some warning to prevent these shipwrecks. Yes, and I, I think one of the, the first warnings, because they didn't have anything, they had some candles in places, but I, I think the one that they, what gives the rock its name, the Bell Rock, the abbot of Arbroath looked out over these sort of wild seas on the east coast of Scotland. And he had a, you know, because of the seafaring nature of his parish or his congregation, he was more aware of them. And he thought, oh, we're going to have to do something with these rocks because they're so dangerous. So he had a bell, sort of he commissioned a bell to be founded. And then he rigged up a structure, towed it out to the rocks and had it anchored to the bottom of the sea. So that each time the waves crashed, which he'd been looking at from the monastery, the bell would ring to warn the sailors. Yeah, and unfortunately, the following year it was stolen by a Dutch pirate who obviously thought it was a good idea. And because it wasn't anchored very well, it was taken off and was no doubt um, protecting ships off the coast of, of Holland. <laughs> well, you see, you see, my story for that, Liz, is slightly different. It was his brother, Ralph, the abbot's brother, Ralph, who was so angry at his goody-goody brother that when he sailed past it, he went down in a small boat and cut the rope and sent the bell to the bottom of the sea. And then the story was that Ralph continued on to Dundee and unloaded his spoils of war to the, he sold them, got more goods on board and went out past the, the bell rocket, it now was called. And instead of the clang, clang, clang of the bell, it was crack, crack crunch as his boat foundered on the rocks and all were sent to the bottom of the sea except the cabin boy who when he survived he came up and said oh that bell is still sounding at the bottom of the ocean but too late for captain ralph i think your story is much better than mine helen <laughs> that was a good story that was a good story but um, the bell might have been there, but the first one that the first way of, of protecting ships from these dangerous exposed points was building a castle on the promontory. And perhaps the most famous of these was the Frasers of Filthorth, who were um, up at Faithley on the northeast coast. And they were trying to develop the fishing village, which has today become Fraserborough. And so they built a castle there and it might have been a navigation beacon for ships um, as they tried to make their way around the treacherous north east coast but it wasn't the first lighthouse to be built no the earliest lighthouse was on the isle of may not not far away from us Liz, by james maxwell and he did this under charles the first that's interesting now we have charles the third but king charles the first in 1635 sort of commissioned this lighthouse on the isle of may yeah, it was interesting that it burned coal. Well, of course, it's sitting on coal, isn't it? The Isle of May. 
Yeah, exactly. So these lighthouses, which is you've probably picked up by now our subject for today's episode, these lighthouses have moved forward as technology has developed. But the ones that we know today weren't really developed until the 18th century. Yes, it was It was just, I think it was very hit or miss, the previous ones, but the 18th century, we seemed to get the, the engineering know-how, the skills, and, the, and the, just the technology and, and the money. <laughs> yeah, it was driven by the fact that in 1782, it was a particularly stormy year, and a number of severe storms meant that, um, that an especially large number of vessels were shipwrecked off the Scottish coast. And so in 1786, there was an Act of Parliament which founded a number of lighthouse boards around the UK. And in Scotland, we got the Northern Lighthouse Board. And in fact, we still have it today. Yes, and it includes the Isle of Man, of course, now, but its headquarters are in Edinburgh in George Street. And I always think it's fascinating to see above their door, they have a model of a lighthouse and the light flashes as a real lighthouse. Yeah, I think it's always interesting to tell your visitors when they come to Edinburgh that you're going to show them a lighthouse sitting right in the middle of George Street in Edinburgh's new town. And of course, the we mentioned you mentioned Kinnaird Castle, and that was bought over by the Lighthouse Board. And it was there that Thomas Smith, who really began a dynasty, um, Thomas Smith uh, started the, put in the first light there. Yep, when the Northern Lighthouse Board was formed, the commissioners were given powers to borrow money um, and purchase land, but most importantly of all, to levy dues from ships, cargo ships, who had to pay a due or a, a tax to provide the finance. And that's still the way in which these lighthouse, well, the lighthouses, we'll see that they're not the way that they were when they were first built, but that's still the way today that they're funded. Yes, because there's no nothing comes out of the, the taxpayers' money to fund the lighthouses. It's all through these levies that still go out to the boats. Yep, and as you say, Thomas Smith was the, the beginning of a dynasty because he was the father-in-law of Robert Stevenson, who would go on to found the most famous of all the lighthouse families, the, the Stevenson family. Yes, I think nowadays we think of the Stevensons, uh, sometimes many of our listeners will think of them under one of the, I think it's the third generation, Robert Louis Stevenson, the author. But much of his writing was influenced by going round with his father to sites where his father would be building lighthouses. Yep, their their major role, this lighthouse family, their major role was as engineers. Because if you think about it, these lighthouses that we're talking about are situated in some of the most exposed, dangerous areas of Scotland. And Scotland's coast is dotted with 207 of these lighthouses, which have come from the Stevenson dynasty. Yes, and they're, they're just... They're amazing and it's still, it's still just a, a joy when you're walking along a beach and there's a lighthouse. I remember walking across along Lossiemouth Beach with the kids when we lived up there and just that was the thing, walk to the lighthouse, run to the lighthouse. So there were just landmarks all over wherever we were. Yeah, but if, if Robert Stevenson, the first of the Stevenson's mothers had had her way, 
they would never have been an engineering dynasty because she wanted her son, her young son, Robert, to become a minister. He was born in Glasgow in 1772 and his father died while Robert was still young. So he was educated at a charity school. And when his father died, his mother remarried Thomas Smith, who was a lamp maker, but also a mechanic and a civil engineer. And so when the Northern Lighthouse Board was established by this Act of Parliament in 1786, he was appointed as their first inaugural engineer. Yes, and and that, as you say, we said, just started the dynasty because, of course, his stepson carried on that that role eventually. And the the story of how they built was amazing. And, of course, Robert Stevenson, his sons, he'd quite a large family, but three or four of his sons followed him as engineers, notably on lighthouses. Yeah, we had 10 children. And three sons went on to um, to become involved in the building and the, the engineering that was taking part at the place at this time. But I also think it's interesting as well, another reference to Edinburgh um, and the George uh, the George and Newtown. Um, as you stand at the eastern end, at uh, St Andrew's Square, and look up, you'll see the Melville Monument, a controversial monument at the moment, but it was in its time erected thanks to the engineering skills of Robert Stevenson. And of course, when you look at it with that in mind, you think, yes, I can understand the lighthouses. Very tall, very high and very round. <laughs> yep, exactly. But his three sons, David, Alan and Thomas, all went into the business. And so over almost 150 years, we had this dynasty building the greatest lighthouses that we now associate with Scotland. Yes, going on to 1930, and that seems quite quite recent. And the big thing about these lighthouses they built is they're still standing. Most of them, yep, absolutely. Some of them without any sort of alterations or repairs, just the work they did was unbelievable. And I think that all comes down to the good old power of Scotland's geology, the granite that they were able to use in their work. But just think about it, Helen, just think. It's difficult enough nowadays to service these when they need repairs. But when these were actually being constructed, just think of how difficult it would have been. They had to employ scores of men because they couldn't just blow up the rock because they needed to build the lighthouse on the rock. So they had to cut these foundations using pickaxes. Yes, it was, and it was almost a, a double shift every time, sort of three, three men on, three men off, just at the tide, because many of them are actually sitting out at sea or washed by the tide or crashed against the rocks, even if they're on the mainland. They could only do it when the weather was good. Yeah, if the, if the rocks were, were washed over when it was a high tide, they had to um, keep the men in boats until they could build a temporary structure called a beaten a beacon structure, um, so that they could get the men ashore. And you can imagine with these these tough rocks that blacksmiths were an important skill to be able to sharpen the axes as the men were working away. That's right. And one of the the we've got the lighthouses, but think about lighthouse keeping. We're talking about these remote areas that the men were building and constructing the lighthouses. But once they were up and running, you had to have people maintaining them and keeping the light going. After all, the lighthouse itself was no good without the light. Yeah, so very, very strict regulations that they worked under to keep the light. But if you think about it, it wasn't just the risk of the tides and the storms washing over these rocks. Again, another feature of the Scottish weather is fog. 
And so they had to keep the fog signal in perfect working order to make sure that in, in, when uh, there was the har, as we would know it in Scotland, um, that, that, that the ships still weren't washed onto the rocks. That's right. And these foghorns, I mean, I don't know about you, Liz, but I remember you just hearing the foghorns coming out of the mist because if you're on the shore, you could still hear them coming out of the mist. Quite an eerie sound. Oh, yeah, I lived when I was I start, I went to school in Kinghorn off the east coast of Fife, and there the foghorn coming from is it Inch Keith that's got the foghorn? I'm not sure which one in the fourth, but certainly it was a feature of the Firth of Fourth. Yeah, and that's that's where I would hear it too when we were used to be on holiday over there. You just hear it just coming out there, just amazing. Yep, so during the daytime, the keepers had to clean and uh, keep the, the light and fog signal in perfect working order. They had to paint the structure, keep the premises clean and tidy. But also, if you think about it, what a dangerous job, the height that you've got to work at. You had to handle dangerous substances like acid, caustic soda, even mercury involved in keeping the light in perfect working order. Yes, but the light was only part of it because they were the people out there. They had to learn how to all have the skills to be able to do all the running repairs of day-to-day living. Yeah, and it was bad enough if you worked on a land-based station where you could have your wife and your family living alongside you in lighthouse keepers' cottages. But just imagine if you were on a rock station, like the Bell Rock that we've talked about, or Skerry Vore, where you were on the rock for four weeks at a time and then ashore for four weeks at a time. Yes, but of course, when they were on the rock, one of the skills that the lighthouse keepers developed was knitting. They do the knitting of their thick socks that they needed, of the jumpers they needed, just to keep them, keep their fingers agile for all the more finicky stuff around the lamp, but also just to give them something warm. Yep. And you would have to be a useful cook because, you know, you're out there, you've got your supplies delivered every so often, if you're lucky. And you also had to have a a special temperament because you had to be a good companion um, or you wouldn't be popular for four weeks of loneliness and isolation with your companions. And as we've said, the weather was such and the areas that the lighthouses were, you couldn't just go and take a wee walk (laughs) in that stormy weather. Yeah, and you had to wait on a little small boat coming across from the mainland to transport your supplies. And then when they got there, initially, they would have needed to be carried up hundreds of steps, just like the original rock would have had to be done when they were building the lighthouse. Yes, and you know, so so strength was required. But they over the time they did develop some sort of means of making life easier for them, like the the Blondin wire system that they had after the Charles Blondin, the the French tight rope walker, that they would hoist the goods straight off the boat up to the lighthouse. But that was fine until the hoist broke. <laughs> And there was a, a particularly miserable Christmas Eve in 1973 when exactly that happened on on a little remote lighthouse on Muckle Flugger, which I think is a fantastic name. We'll come back to explain more about that. But um, when the rope broke, almost all the supplies ended up sliding down the cliff face. And because the, the <laughs> weather was so bad, there was no deliveries made until the 2nd of January. So that was a particularly uh, miserable Christmas for the lighthouse keepers. 
Just imagine them standing there watching Christmas dinner disappear down the cliff face into the boiling surf at the bottom. Uh, I'm sure there was a few choice words said on that occasion. But even the lighthouse keepers themselves, if they couldn't land on the pier, they were transported across, winched across by these hoists and up to the top. So it was a dangerous life. Yes, and, you know, it just... I think, as you say, a very special person. Still, even today, although we don't have lighthouse keepers as such, we've still got some remote islands where people go to stay to look after the birds or to you know, do scientific research. So, again, it's the same temperament that's required. Yeah, and of course, as we've said, the Northern Lighthouse Board is still with us today, still providing a vital safety service. Uh, But the technology has moved on. I mean, when these lighthouse keepers were going out in the first place, it would have been oil that replaced the coal that we've talked about on the first one. And there was a particularly valued oil, which was spermaceti, which is the oil from the head of the sperm whale. So just imagine, you know, whaling went on in Scotland. The sperm whales, which are so protected today. This was the preferred oil because it burned brightest and longer than any other oil. So, you know, these were, this was high technology of its time. Yes. And of course, we've talked about the Northern Lighthouse Board um, of Scotland, responsible for Scotland and the Isle of Man. But there are for the lighthouses elsewhere in England, for example, in Ireland, you've got the Trinity House, which is England, Wales, Channel Islands and Gibraltar. And then you've got the Irish Light lights, which is responsible for the whole of the island of Ireland. So it's you know there's it's all divided up, but all worked under the general lighthouse authorities. Yeah, but they noticed that the Isle of Man had fallen between two stools, so they tucked it within the protection of the Northern Lighthouse Board. And still to this day, the Northern Lighthouse Board just protect is protects the six lighthouses on the the Isle of Man. So we had the oil to start with, and then a major technological revolution was the coming of acetylene gas. Yes, and that that just made a a huge difference. And of course, it could be transported out in tanks again, adding to the danger. Yeah, of course. So I'm glad that in modern technology, you've now got solar power. Um, and so the, our lighthouses today, um, it's much more efficient and much more sustainable, but much safer to have solar power. And of course, this means this modern, this movement in technology means that today we don't have any lighthouse keepers or wikis as they were known. They're all automated. Yes, and I'm just thinking that it's all very up-to-date and modern, you know, solar power. And some of our listeners might say, round the coast of Scotland, solar power. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think they have a lot of panels. Yeah. <laughs> Wonders of modern technology. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we've got 121 solar-powered sites. And also, they're not all um, lighthouses that we think of, the traditional form. Most of them now, 150 of them, are floating solar systems all around the coastline. Yeah, just to kind of keep all the rocks sort of ashore. We used to have light ships. Um, the the East Car or the North Car light ship is still sitting in Dundee at the moment, isn't it? Waiting to be refurbished as a as a museum to tell us the story of the light ships. Yeah, because we're fascinated by the story of these lighthouses. And they're some of our best places to visit in Scotland because they're such little architectural gems. And also they tell the story of these times that there that so many stories associated with the lighthouse keepers and the harsh conditions that they lived in. And we'll come on to that next week when we tell some of the stories 
But for the rest of today, Helen, just a, a chance to chat about some of our favourite places to visit. I'll start off with one of my least point, which is off the, 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 the most westerly point of Skye. And it is just such a dramatic location. Perch right out on the edge of the cliff. You've got to walk down steep steps from the car park out along the side of the cliffs. And then when you get there to the, you can see the lighthouse and its surrounding cottages and all of these winches and um, equipment that was used to, to bring the supplies and the keepers up to this most exposed lighthouse. Yes, it's beautiful, absolutely stunning. Well, the one I'm going to talk about, Liz, is the Isle of May, the one that we uh-huh. kind of touched on, the Isle of May Lighthouse. That was one. Now, we now think of the Isle of May as being a bird sanctuary, which it is. But one or two years ago, Liz, when I was about seven or eight, we stayed in Crail in the East Duke of Fife for a fortnight's holiday. That's what you did before we discovered Spain. Uh, before we went to Palma, <laughs> uh, we we went to Crail for a family holiday, staying in a family hotel. And it, the weather was not as good as it could be. So some very enterprising guests in the hotel decided to organise a boat out to the Isle of May. So it was only Sunday we could go because it was a fishing boat, a working fishing boat out of Anstruther we went on. No health and safety then. They just kind of washed down the decks, cleared it of fish and on we went. And we went over to the Isle of May and we went up. The lighthouse keepers were still there. The light was still manned and the lighthouse keepers took us up right round and into the light at the top of the lighthouse. Fascinating. I still remember it, Liz. It was great. The journey over and the journey back was a bit hairy because it was kind of wild because we went there because we couldn't go to the beach. But that's. I still look over the Isle of May and thinking, I've been over there. I've been in that lighthouse. Yeah, well, I have a similar tale about the most westernly of the, the Scottish lighthouse, and that's Ardnamurchan, which is on the Ardnamurchan Peninsula, and the most westerly point on the British mainland. It's due west of Fort William, and on it we have a tower which was built by Alan Stevenson in 1849. That's Robert Louis Stevenson's uncle. And we went on a family holiday there in a motorhome. I would have been about maybe 15, 16. So this was quite an adventurous holiday for us. And we ended up at Ardnamurchan Point and we climbed one of our most beautiful lighthouses because it's made of beautiful pink granite, which um, the, the Stevensons got from the nearby island of Mull. And they built the only British lighthouse that's what's called in the Egyptian style. So it's a really attractive architectural decorative feature. And when you climb up it, as we did, you get this fantastic viewing platform. Um, So you can look right over the natural surroundings and look out for dolphins and whales in the waters off the west coast of Scotland. And I think what's interesting today, Helen, about Ardnamurchan is it's a good example of how these uh, these structures, these architectural gems are really valued. And this lighthouse has been bought out by a communal trust, a group of local community volunteers who actually have brought the complex into their ownership, this community transfer that we can now do in Scotland under the new reformed land ownership. And they are running it as a visitor centre, but also a social enterprise, um, which gives employment to the local area. And also you can actually go and stay in the lighthouse keeper cottages if you fancy being a wiki for a week. Yes, and I think that's something that they're they're doing in a number of places because what is amazing, you talked about the architectural features, that we think of lighthouses as just being 
a tall cylinder in the air with a light on the top. But when you look at them closely, they are all individual. You know, the Isle of May one is a castellated stone building designed to resemble a castle, mm-hmm. just so it fitted in with the landscape. And, you know, the, the rocks that they use are usually just from the, the nearby, so it just all fits in very nicely. Yeah, a good example of that. Both you and I have been in, in the Western Isles. The Butt of Lewis has to be one of the most spectacular, standing right up on the northern tip of the Isle of Lewis. So you've got these waves crashing right across the, the jagged rocks. And there you've got um, the Butt of Lewis like house which is made of beautiful red bricks and um, so it has this terracotta um appearance the tower yeah. is, is it, when it's the sunset you can see it reflected across the waves it's absolutely beautiful yeah. and then of course poor poor butt of lewis lighthouse is in the guinness book of records much to the dismay of of the people round about discovered that this, this spot on Isle of Lewis officially registered as the world's windiest location. <laughs> and it was like that for many years. So, <laughs> Not a place you'd want to be. But we no. mentioned before Muckle Flugger, which I absolutely love. And we're talking about windswept places to be. Muckle Flugger comes from Old Norse language, meaning a large, steep-sided island. It certainly is. It's located off the coast of Unst on the Shetland Isles. And it had a particular purpose. It was built during the Crimean War in eighteen, the middle of the 19th century, the 1850s, where it was built to protect Her Majesty's ships as they headed away from Shetland off to the Crimean War. Um, so it was some exposed structure because the waves could sweep right over the 200 feet summit of the rock. It's, it's unbelievable. And what, what amuses me is that you, you mentioned it's on North Unst and was originally just known as the Lo- North Unst Lighthouse. But in 1964, they changed the name back to Muckleflugger. They decided that was a much better name. Yeah, much better. And they also created a much better lighthouse as well because they, there was a time when a wave went right over and broke down the massive iron door and flooded the accommodation. So they built a circular structure of brick round about it and there's not a single drop of water has managed to oh, get God. in since. So that's what you need for a good lighthouse. Good, solid yeah. construction. A lot to thank the Stevensons for. And of course, one that I think most of our listeners will have heard of, we mentioned it earlier, the Bell Rock Lighthouse. That was just a magnificent structure. And it's, it's just off, off our broth and the abbot of our broth, you'll put out the bell, which changed Inchcape Rock name to Bell Rock. But it's built on the rocks which are 12 foot under the water level. So the building was had to be done at low tide only when the weather permitted. And it's the world's oldest surviving operational sea-washed lighthouse, built in the early 1800s. Sea-washed, if you think about it, the dangers of living on an, an, a lighthouse that was sea-washed. I think when it comes to my favourite, you know me, I love my islands, I love my Orkneys and Shetlands. Um, my favourite is Sumbara because it has such happy memories. I've had tourists there, groups that I've led, and you, of course you go to Jarlshof, which is the archaeological site at, um, on Shetland, but you can actually walk along the cliffs and you're heading up, 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 up along a little path that runs along up to the southern tip of the most remote island on Shetland. It's just absolutely weather-beaten and it stands there 
It was made in, in 1821. It's still standing. And as you walk up there, the amazing flora and fauna that you find walking along that coastline. And that my eternal memory is the puffins. You know, we got some fantastic fo- photos of the puffins nesting on the cliff face as you're walking up towards Sumberhead Lighthouse. Yeah, they're they're beautiful wee birds, aren't they? But you're returning to the Bell Rockless. We would have thought that with all this crashing of waves, etc., it would have been quite easy to get Parliament or whatever to agree to the building of a ro- of a lighthouse and the crashing of you know, shipwrecks. But it was only till when the HMS, the warship HMS York, founded on the rocks there in 1804 that Parliament went up in arms and said, build a lighthouse, build a lighthouse. Stevenson had said he wanted to do it earlier than that. But I... I read somewhere that they actually built the, in order to see how they could build it, they built it on the on the shore and below high water line, you can still see on the rocks the outline of where the Stevensons were working out mathematically how to build this lighthouse out on the Bell Rock. But I have a family connection with the Bell Rock Lighthouse, Liz. Yep. Or it's it's a kind of a legendary connection. Uh-huh. Obviously, the stones had to come from somewhere, and the stones came from the mainland, the quarries on the mainland. And my great great uncle was a farmer up there, or a carter up there, and he and his cart transferred the stones from the quarry to the pier, which then went out to build the Bell Rock Lighthouse. Or so my cousin tells me in a poem, because he heard on a documentary, I half heard the word of the name of the horse, which was Bathy, and that was our maiden name. So he wrote a poem t- talking about our great-great-uncle Peter Bathy and his horse helping to build the Bell Rock by transporting the, the stones. Okay, go for it, Helen. So that's it. So that, that's well, you don't have the got, poem. I thought you were going to give us the poem. No, it's too long. It's it's too it's too long. It would take up another episode. Well, yes. it, your uncle may be famous for his poem, but of course, at the time of Robert Stevenson was the time of another famous Scot, the Scottish author Sir Walter Scott. Uh, and he took um, Robert Stevenson took Sir Walter Scott out on many of his expeditions, going out to view um, potential sites for lighthouses. And Sir Walter Scott is said to have drawn inspiration, particularly for the pirate that was um, inspired by a visit to Sumber Ahead. But uh, we have this fascination with stories, tales that are associated with these lighthouses, and that's going to be our topic for next week. We'll look at some of the stories, like the. The German U-boat that uh, was blown up off the coast of Sumbara and the lighthouse keeper was able to haul one of the survivors up the foot of the cliff. So there's plenty of stories to be told about these lighthouses. And we could go on, we could go on forever today, but so we've decided to split it in two. So stories next time. Stories next week, although we're always good for good stories. <laughs> Talking of which, any words of the week? I'm going to grab mine first of all, and because I've no time to prepare it, so I'm going to go to muckle, muckle flugger. Muckle means big, muckle, and we've got a little saying in Scotland: "Money's a meekle, max a muckle." So we talk about look after the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves. So if you look after the little things, the big things will be taken care of. So meekle is small and muckle is big. Yeah, and you know, a bit like you, Liz, I haven't really thought of a light, of a thing. I just thought we use the word lichty. Uh-huh. 
for a light, a lichty. Okay, one, so one. just all, all these lichties ruined the coast. Yep, and of course, um, wasn't it a lichty that Robert Louis Stevenson used for his lamplighter when in his, his, his children's tales? So Robert yes. Louis Stevenson, who was the one that got away, not an engineering background, but he gave us a lot to be thankful for in the world of literature. Yes, and of course, a lot of his literature was based on his travels with his father around the sites of lighthouses. And I'm sure we'll mention some of those next week. Okay, thanks, Helen. Enjoy today. Yeah, thank you, Liz. Bye, everybody. Bye. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's Cheery Bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.